My husband's cancer came back this summer after not being evident for almost two years. Jesse was diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer in June 2021 after a routine colonoscopy, his first. He underwent six months of adjuvant chemotherapy, and none of his surveillance scans have revealed any evidence of disease. But in June, he received a positive result on a Signaterra test, which predicts disease recurrence in patients with some types of cancer months before it shows up on a scan. The main thing to do now is wait. Jesse will undergo Signaterra testing every three months for the foreseeable future. Merely receiving a single positive result flooded us with uncertainty that cannot be easily dissipated. That was Mara Bookbinder, a professor and vice chair of the Department of Social Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She was reading from her recent first opinion essay on the concept of patience in waiting. After a quick break, I'll speak with her and her husband, Jesse Summers, about how increasingly sophisticated diagnostic testing offers patients and their families both more information about their health and new kinds of stressors. Right now, millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, don't overlook specialty benefits like dental, vision, hearing, or wellness programs. Many health plans now offer incentives for exercising or for not smoking, and many Medicare Advantage plans offer gym memberships at no extra cost. Second, check your prescription benefits. Filling prescriptions at a participating network pharmacy or with home delivery may help you manage costs and get the most from your prescription coverage. For more tips, visit uhcopenenrollment.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome, Mara and Jesse. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think this is my first husband-wife interview uh, on the First Opinion podcast, and I'm very excited for it. You know, Jesse, um, you know, first I want to thank you for being comfortable with Mara sharing your story with us on STAT and for for being here for this. Um, You know, I'd like to just ask you if you can briefly tell us about um, your cancer experience up until this point. Mara gave us some of the highlights, lowlights, I'm not sure what you would say, Um, but I would love to hear from you, um, you know, what you've been through in the past few years. So the experience has been... um... Uh, maybe surreal in some ways. I I felt like I was uh, healthy. I would go so far as to say I was healthy, uh, except for having metastatic cancer. Um, So we were both very surprised to discover it. There were so many things that I thought about when I was first diagnosed, especially because when you're first diagnosed, and you're told not to Google anything and then ignore that advice, you discover 
all sorts of horrible um, facts. Um, and you don't know what to put in, how to put anything into context, and you don't know what is true about your own particular case. Over time, because my treatment ended up going pretty much textbook, uh, things, I would say, just got better as they went. Not in a straight line, but but generally got better. The surgery was good, successful. Um, the chemo was good, successful. Everything seemed um, good. And until we had the that one positive result, everything had seemed uh, to be good, exactly as we would have expected. Uh, no evidence of disease anywhere. My labs were all getting back to normal. Everything seemed to be good. So that was the experience. That was the experience up until up until that um, up until that test result. And that's a relatively new test. And right. And when they say a positive result, what does that mean exactly? Right. So it's a test that tests for circulating tumor DNA, DNA that's matched to the tumor that I had. Uh, the um, it it checks for evidence of um, any of that free floating DNA of the of the tumor itself. It shouldn't be there on its own for any reason. So if it's there, it's a pretty good it's pretty good evidence that that tumor is trying to reform somewhere or another. And then for now, you just are continuing to to retest. Is that correct? That's right. So the initial plan was the we would just retest. My initial result was positive, but very low. There wasn't anything to do about it. Um, well, that's not quite right. There were several things to do, uh, mostly involving Mara's uh, Googling for trials that I might be eligible for. Um, my uh, sort of doubling down on all of the uh, healthy things that you should be doing all the time and that generally I was doing, but, you know, there's a difference between, uh, cutting down the amount of sugar you're eating and trying not to eat any sugar, uh, right there. So I made, you know, that much more of an effort to, you know, to make sure that whatever was starting to pop up, um, wasn't going to develop. And then, then we got a negative result, you know, after that. So that was good news. Um, it might have shown that, uh, you know, we had been successful. I had been successful. My immune system did what it needed to do. Uh, might have just shown some natural variation. Or, or if I could jump in, or it might have shown that the first one was a, fa a false positive, which was the right. possibility that um, Jesse's oncologist raised with us. Right, right, exactly. So the oncologist felt like because the number was really low, it could have been a false positive. Given everything else in the in my tests and labs that looked good, he thought this is 
likely to be a false positive. Then we did another test result, uh, did another test, and the result of that was positive again after a negative one. And that one was um, significantly higher, still low enough that it could, in theory, be a false positive, but high enough that that's no longer the best explanation of it. So this was actually the day after my essay came out. Um, we, I, I knew when that essay was published that we were waiting on these Signoterra results. They usually take seven to de 10 days to come back after the blood is drawn. And so the very next day after the essay came out, we found out that indeed he had another positive. It was a little bit higher than the first one. I think, what was the number? 0.68 or something. It had been 0.05. So still, still pretty low because, um, Generally, people say that it has to be up around at least 12 in order for a tumor to be visible on scan. Um, and Jesse has scans scheduled for next week, so that would be kind of an obvious follow-up at this point. Um, but, you know, it, it, well, interestingly, given that his oncologist had told us he wouldn't treat a, a positive Signatera result without scan evidence, um, he actually changed his mind on that. So, um, so that was surprising. I don't know if, if you want to talk about that, Jess. Sure. Um, this is how my patient in waiting status changed from that to being a patient the day after Mara's, um, publication came out. I think the oncologist, I, I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, and the oncologist said, this is sort of uncharted territory. This is not um, evidence-based medicine in one sense um, because we don't know for sure what, what ctDNA means. Uh, we just don't have enough history of knowing what a level like this means. Combining it with any other information, what that means. We don't know what treatment will do if it will be effective um, in a case like this. But there's some good theoretical reason to think that if this is micrometastatic cancer, the treatment that we would normally give for micrometastatic cancer should work here. So uh, he he put me on one of the two uh, chemo drugs that I had been on before. He offered the one that I hated before that just had terrible side effects. And um, I said I would be happy to go on the one I was on before that had minimal side effects. And he agreed um, that that would be fine. So so I'm doing that. Uh you know, with with good theoretical justification, but no, you know, history of knowing how this sort of thing is likely to to play out. Which is, you know, I'm sure for both of you, just such a an alarming place to be. Even though you're now back to being a regular patient, you're still in this kind of waiting zone. Um, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned Jesse the phrase "patient in waiting" because my my next question was for Mara which is that the place where you and, and Jesse are right now is almost eerily aligned with a concept that you and your colleagues came up with some time ago of the patient in waiting. Um, can you explain what a patient in waiting is? 
Yeah. Um, so this concept emerged out of the work that I did with Stefan Timmermans back in 2008. We started the research looking at expanded newborn screening for genetic disorders in um, California. And we found, so I'm a, I'm a medical anthropologist by training and Stefan is a sociologist. And um, we found that as new screening targets were being added to the panel of standard conditions that newborns are screened for at birth with a, a heel stick, um, and, and that occurs uh, in every state in the U.S., um, but at the time, the panel had, had recently been expanded to include a range of new metabolic disorders, and um, we found that babies were being identified as, um, as having these conditions. And it turned out that um, in some cases, it wasn't clear that the disorders we were screening for were actually going to manifest into full-blown disease. Because once you start screening for something on a population-wide level, you you start to find a lot more variation than you would find if you only identified the sick cases that manifest with a lot of symptoms. Um, and so we called these patients patients-in-waiting because they had been identified as having abnormal genetic variants, but it it wasn't clear that they were actually going to be diseased. And so they were kind of hovering in this state where they were not quite sick, but not quite healthy either. And this was actually profoundly distressing for parents because this was a newborn baby. They didn't know what to expect. Um, and it, it really affected, in some cases, the way that they bonded with their infants. There was a lot of anxiety and distress associated with it. And so when I was thinking about, I mean, there are some ways in which I think that this concept really parallels what Jesse is going through and, and some ways that maybe it doesn't fit as well. But I was thinking in particular about myself as a caregiver and, and as Jesse's wife. And um, there's a way in which the anxiety and distress that these results create, it it almost doesn't matter, you know, what the underlying physiological condition is, if there's a tumor there, if it's not, because it creates a lot of distress anyway. And in that way, I saw my experience as kind of similar to these parents in our study. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the differences and similarities between what you and Jesse are going through and what these parents went through. Um, maybe we can start with some of the differences. One difference is that Jesse already had a stage four cancer diagnosis, right? You know, I don't think either one of us probably loves this word, but he's a cancer survivor. That I think is really different than this patient in waiting case, because if you've had cancer and particularly if you've had metastatic cancer, you're going to be under surveillance for a long time. And so there's a way in which Jesse was already kind of a patient or a patient in waiting just because he had undergone that experience. And, and, he was only about two years out at the time that we got this positive result. But I think the patient and waiting part really comes into play when you get a, this positive result and you're not quite sure about what it's going to mean for you. Um, and there was this sense of kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, 
I don't know. It, it, did that resonate with you, Jesse? I mean, how, how did this feel to, to you and your experience? You probably felt my being a patient in waiting more than I did, to be honest. I know sort of in the background all the time that it's possible that this will come back. And I don't think it, while I am happy that everything has been positive and I, and I am actually optimistic about things in the long run, some people survive this. And I think there's very good reason to think I'm in the, in the group that's going to have the best chances. So I think because I already had this in mind, that test result didn't necessarily change my view of myself. The most recent one did, but of course it did, it changed me to a patient. One difference between us is I think I'm probably more, I'm going to use the term in its philosophical sense, uh, not in maybe the, the slightly related contemporary sense, but I think I'm more stoic about how things are going. There's nothing I can do. Sorry, that's not right. There are lots of things I can do. I'm doing those things anyway. And I don't have any additional control over the luck of whether this stuff works out or not. And that didn't especially change with with the first test result. Um, it only changed with the second one because there was something that we could do. And I think I probably don't think a lot about my status as a, as a patient or not. Um, I, I don't actually know at what point post-metastatic cancer you ever say, everything is fine. I'm just, I don't have to, to worry about anything. I mean, maybe you get to a point where you feel like I'm more likely to die of something else now than than a recurrence. But um, but it seems like that'll that'll be a while. I want to take actually a really quick detour to language. Um, you know, so Mara, you mentioned earlier that you think you both probably have some objections to the term survivor. You know, Jesse, you just said something about you know never not feeling like a patient, maybe, as opposed to a patient in waiting. Um, I wonder if you, maybe we'll start with you, Jesse, could talk just a little bit about some of the language in cancer and and the way you think about it. Sure. Uh, Survivor, I agree, is a, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I, I definitely don't use that term. I think I don't use that term because it feels like it's tempting fate. Um, The, the term that seems especially complicated to me is battling cancer because um, at least when I was doing, when, when I was on chemo before uh, it did not feel like a battle. It, it felt like a beating, (laughs) but it did, it it did not feel like a battle. Um, But, you know, this is, I think my approach is, has been, to be optimistic that things are going to work out, uh, but but also feel like there's not this is not something that I have to spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean, I can't help spending some time thinking about it, uh, certainly early on, especially. Um, but but I'm I'm trying not to spend time 
thinking about it. And I think a lot of the the imagery of of people, you know, battling cancer, it, I think it's very helpful for some people and and you know, I, I certainly don't want to criticize the use of the term for for everyone. Um uh for me it it felt like this is something I want to ignore to the extent that I can. I just I would like to have a normal life again. I don't I don't want to have learned great life lessons um, from from cancer. I I just want to to go back to ignoring my own mortality, or at least ignoring it in the way that most of us do, where occasionally you are reminded, and most of the time you just don't think about it. Can I just say that Jesse has a really um, great essay that he wrote on the point he just made that was published in Slate. Uh, a little over a year ago that we can send to you in case it's of interest to link in the show notes. Please do. You know, I was, so I was an editor at Slate for, for a long time. And back in 2010, um, I ran a piece from uh, Elaine Shatner, an oncologist who had breast cancer, writing about why she disliked the term cancer survivor. So um, lots of great survivor discourse out there, including on Slate and on Stat. Um, Mayor, I'm curious about your thoughts on on the phrase survivor, on patient, and, and some of this other sort of vernacular. I think my issue with the term cancer survivor is that it sort of erases your identity as, as just a regular person a little bit. You know, I think anyone that has their life defined by cancer so much, because when you're going through treatment, it can be all-consuming and it can take over so many aspects of your life. And I completely recognize that there are so many side effects and consequences that sort of follow you out of the treatment period. Jesse still has um, some permanent neuropathy in his feet as a result of his treatment. Um, but I guess I, I think that there comes a time when people would like to stop being defined by their cancer. And so um, I guess that's just my issue with with this term survivor. You mean because it seems like survivor is you're you're done with it. I, I mean I wasn't actually thinking of it in that way. I was thinking of it that it just it it's leading with cancer as part of your identity. But but maybe it's that too. I mean maybe it's that you can't ever completely put it behind you. That's kind of interesting. There's a tension there. Yeah, and you know, Mara, sort of speaking of uh, identity in all of this, you know, what has it been like for your your personal life and the life of your your loved one to intersect so strongly with your your academic, your professional life? Mm. You know, Jesse talked a bit about your your extraordinary Googling skills in terms of finding clinical trials. Obviously, this has all sorts of intersections with your work on patients in waiting. I mean, what has that been like? It was very difficult for me to adjust to the caregiver role. Um, I've spent a lot of time in doctor's offices, first as a patient, because I have a chronic illness myself. Um, I have inflammatory bowel disease, which is why it was a little bit ironic that Jesse was the one that ended up with a bad colonoscopy, because he had been taking me to colonoscopies for years. 
And then also, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research in clinical settings as well, but I had not been in this sort of serious caregiver role, and I kind of didn't know what to do with myself in that role. Um, I remember being very disoriented when we started meeting the surgeons and, um, and the oncologist, and, um, and they weren't paying attention to me, and I didn't understand why. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, of course, you're not the patient here. Um, but that, <laughs> that was, I, I just wasn't used to being on that side of things. Um, I think both Jesse and I are academics and researchers, so we have definitely invested a lot of um, time into making sure that we are knowledgeable about colon cancer, but I have taken a particular investment um, in sort of spending time in in some of the online communities for cancer, for people with colon cancer and their caregivers. There's a great group on Facebook called Colon Town that has been a real wonderful source of support for me. And I think where Jesse's more kind of inclined to try to get back to normal and not think about it too much. I have spent a lot of time on Colon Town, getting information, meeting other patients and caregivers, and it's been really valuable to us in our experience. And Jesse, what's your area of, of academic research? I should have asked this earlier. Philosophy and ethics in particular. So how do you think that background has affected the way you think about well, you know, you you mentioned stoicism earlier, <laughs> um, but you know, how do you think thinking about philosophy and ethics has affected the way you've gone through this? I don't know how you feel about the word journey, given our discussion about semantics, but this experience. I don't know the the piece that Mara referenced before was in some ways my trying to make sense of this. I suppose philosophically, um, although ultimately my main argument in there to the extent that there's a philosophical argument in there is you shouldn't care about lessons from the dying because there's no reason to think that we have any particular insight and to the extent that we do there's good reason to think that it doesn't apply to the people who aren't dying right away I mean, I'll go back to the stoicism is not what I work on. Um, uh, so I know just enough to get me in trouble in saying <laughs> this. But but it, I think this did bring out some some stoic traits. But the stoic traits probably are Midwestern, not philosophical. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I mean, I, I definitely felt them. I, I resist trying to make too much out of the experience, trying to make too much out of any particular you know, event that's happened or any particular test result, you know, thinking back, for example, when we found out that the, the tumor was metastatic, which was, you, you know, hugely important. It moved me from a category that had statistically a very strong likelihood of, of recovery, um, disease-free survival to one that just does not, um, that was hard, but thinking back on it, I, it it doesn't seem like it was as hard as it probably should have been. Maybe some of it is just shock. Maybe it's not stoicism. It's just, you know, it was it was hard to. I could follow the steps. You know, if the surgeon says to do something, then I I do it. Um, but 
yeah, the entire thing felt a little surreal. So maybe maybe it wasn't stoicism. It's just, you know, it never really felt real. Mara, would you consider yourself stoic? No. Or a stoic? In either <laughs> I was gonna say in either the classical or midwestern sense. Tori. In no sense. <laughs> I told you when we were emailing in advance of this interview that Jesse and I are very different. Yes. <laughs> I am not stoic. <laughs> I hope you have great ethical debates over dinner. <laughs> We also have a 10-year-old son, so we have some interesting ethical conversations sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to sort of circle back now to the the Signatera. Um, you know, I guess one question I have is, you know, whether there are any places where you two sort of disagree about either the meaning or the value of, of recurrence testing. I don't know if we disagree. Um, I mean, I, I can start and then, Jesse, maybe you can say if you disagree. But I think it's incredibly valuable, right? I, I would hate for my article to be misinterpreted as saying that we shouldn't offer this technology to patients. And I, I actually feel the same way about newborn screening. But I think it's important to kind of consider the costs of these technologies. Um, I do think that in Jesse's case, there's been a real advantage here because he's back on oral chemotherapy, even though his oncologist said that in, that we probably wouldn't do that. And yet here he is. And I think he has a better shot at completely eradicating this disease as a result of that. Um, but I, I, I also think there's a lot we don't know yet about the way this test works and how it can be applied. And, and that's, um, that's a real exciting opportunity to learn more. And there may be risks involved as well. I'm part of an experiment right now. I, I think I, I probably don't feel quite as confident as Mara does that it's good that I that it means that I can be back on treatment. I'm part of an experiment to determine whether when someone has a positive result and you put them on treatment, their outcomes are better. So there is a cost to doing chemotherapy. M you know, statistically, my life will be shorter as a result of three months on chemotherapy. It will do damage to my body. Uh, the additional scans will do damage to my body that you know may or may not show up in other ways. So there are costs to doing it. And if it turns out it doesn't help things to detect it early, well, then that will be a result of the experiment. I'm optimistic that the experiment will show doing three months of less aggressive chemotherapy in a situation like mine will have better overall results than waiting until something actually shows up on a scan and then doing something more aggressive. But, but I don't know. I mean, this is just, this is just an experiment. And it's hard to know the counterfactual in any one case, right? I mean, you said your life may be shorter because of the harms of the additional scans and chemotherapy, but this may also turn out to have saved your life. And, and we just, we won't know that. Um, all right, my my final question, and then I'll let you go. Um, I would love to hear from each of you about one thing you admire about how the other has approached this 
journey, situation, experience, whatever you prefer to call it. Um, Mara, I'll start with you. What What do you admire about Jesse's approach? Um, definitely his stoicism. I mean, he said that he was stoic in the philosophical sense, but I think he's also stoic in in the more kind of contemporary colloquial sense. Uh, he's just handled this so gracefully with a lot of humor. Um, and, and that has never wavered. He's always been completely himself and, um, kept me laughing even on the first day of his diagnosis. And I, I just deeply admire his ability to do that. Jesse, how about you? Humor is, I think, my coping strategy. So that's, um, <laughs> I think that has been very clear over the last couple of years. I think t- two things came to mind when you asked the question. One is that Mara does not understand but respects my need not to have conversations about how I'm feeling, about <laughs> how things are going, uh, about the uh, treatment and cancer. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, the second thing is Mara, so many of the treatment decisions that we've made have been based on, and treatment decisions that we've considered and rejected have been based on Mara's jumping into research. Uh, so she has learned a lot, for example, um, you know, she has looked for studies. Uh, in fact, I enrolled in in one study uh, for a cancer vaccine that I did. She has spent a lot of time looking. She's looked at studies for how to deal with what's called minimal residual disease, which is, you know, the case that I have. Um, and she just sort of jumps into to that. And, you know, it's hard to know where things would have been without it. I, I don't think I would have requested Signatera if Mara hadn't said, we, you know, you need to request this. I'm sure there have been a number of other decisions that we've made because of of her, you know, research and, and willingness to spend time um, figuring all of this out. What a lovely note to end on. Um, Mara Bookbinder and Jesse Summers, thank you so much for for sharing your story and your just wonderful dynamic uh, with the First Opinion podcast today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is executive producer. I would love to hear from more listeners, and I would really love for you to sign up for the First Opinion newsletter, which comes out every Sunday. And there you can find the latest episode of the podcast and all of the stories we published in the previous week, and sometimes uh, just a few thoughts from me, including some book or TV or podcast recommendations. If you have any thoughts about the show, the column, or the newsletter, you can email me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And you can find the link to sign up for the newsletter in the show notes. And, you know, maybe please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs>